With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports and we interview the author. This week's guest on the podcast is historian Brian Ingracia. We are discussing his book, The Rise of Gridiron University, Higher Education's Uneasy Alliance with Big-Time Football, published by the University Press of Kansas in 2012. American college football is a multi-billion dollar industry. Conferences like the Big Ten and the SEC bring in more than $200 million per year in television revenue alone. And the top individual programs earn anywhere from 70 to $90 million in total revenue each year. Of course, most of these top programs, such as the Texas Longhorns, Michigan Wolverines, and Alabama Crimson Tide, are affiliated with public universities, state-funded institutions of education and research. This odd relationship of high-profile mass spectator sports and higher education has featured plenty of contradictions. For example, in the last five years, public spending on higher education in the United States has declined by a nationwide average of 3%, while the salaries for college football coaches have increased by 55%. Plenty of academics complain about the inequalities, excesses, and corruption in big-time college football. But rather than looking only to coaches, boosters, and athletics administrators, they have to cast a good part of the blame for the current flaws in college sports on their predecessors in the professoriate. As Brian Ingracia shows in his new book, The Rise of College Football was vigorously promoted by university professors and presidents of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Not only did they see football as beneficial to the bodies and moral character of their young male students, they also saw popular sport as a way to build broad support for their institutions at a time when very few Americans enrolled in college. Brian's book is a model work of sports history, The reader learns about the development of the game, as well as how changes in formations and strategies on the field connected with broader cultural and political trends. For students of American history at the turn of the century, even those who don't know Amos Alonzo Stagg from Walter Camp, this book is well worth reading. Here's my interview with Brian. My guest on this week's podcast is Brian Ingracia. Brian, welcome to New Books and Sports. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. 
So we are talking today about Brian's book, The Rise of Gridiron University, which is unique in that it's a work of both sports history and intellectual and cultural history. So to start, Brian, I'll ask what led you into these two seemingly disparate fields of study. That's a really great question. I actually started out primarily interested in cultural and intellectual history and the history of higher education in particular. And uh, I went to grad school, you know, to study these uh, uh, these things. And when I got there, I, there were a lot of people who did working class history, history of race, things like that. And they, they kind of, you know, they, they like to needle me a little bit. They'd say, oh, well, you're just interested in dead white guys. Nobody cares about what you do. You need to do something that's you know, you should be doing something that's relevant to the people and kind of broadly writ. And uh, I, I kind of was floundering around for a while for a topic, and then I realized, I looked around me and I said, wow, uh, college football is such a huge deal um, in our society, and it's such a huge part of American higher education, but nobody ever talks about it as, you know, at least historically, as a, as a piece of, of higher education. It's a cultural ritual. It's uh, sports. But nobody ever kind of looks and says, well, how did sport become this kind of um, quintessential ritual associated with American higher education? And so I started um, exploring that. And that's really actually how I came at it is I I said, you know, if we want to understand um, higher education, the way that institutions of higher education, colleges, universities, how they relate to the public, well, what better way to understand that than arguably the ritual that um, allows colleges and universities uh, today, at least, to connect to non-academic members of the public uh, most most effectively. So that's really how I got interested in, in the topic. So following up on that, and, and I'll add in some, uh, some details about your background. So you went to Eureka College. That's true. Which is, has less than 1,000 students, correct? Yeah. When I was there, it was about 500 students. Okay. Okay. It's it's a little bigger than that now. Okay. So, and this is in a small town in Illinois, and for graduate study, you went to the University of Illinois, which is one of the historic powers of college football. And you could fit all of the residents of Eureka, Illinois, into Memorial Stadium 12 times (laughs) over. So, so when you went to the University of Illinois, yeah. I actually did the math. So when yeah. when you went to Champaign, to the University of Illinois, were were you surprised by the environment of a a big time football school? You know, I wouldn't say I was surprised. Of course, I I had grown up, even though I wasn't a big college football fan. My dad um, was a University of Illinois fan, and I had seen games on TV before. And you know, I I watched college basketball and football games when I was in in college, and it it didn't surprise me. I think what kind of, what what I found really intriguing was um, when I would go to, I went to some football games my first couple of years there, and I just remember looking around and thinking, wow, this is so different from what I had seen as an undergraduate at a small college. Uh, And and Eureka is actually, as far as small colleges go, football is a really big deal there. It goes back to the 1890s. Um, right, so they started playing right around the same time the University of Illinois did. But, of course, you know, the, the stadium, such as it was, seated maybe about 2,000 people, mostly alums and students and parents showed up on game day. And really they, they stressed kind of an, I don't want to say old-fashioned, but a very kind of 19th century idea of sport as a way of kind of building uh, the sound mind and a sound body and kind of connecting these two things. And at 
University of Illinois, of course, it was much more about the pageantry, the consumerism, the competition, the money. And I just I remember looking around and going, well, how did this happen? And I think what probably I found striking more than the, the sport culture of a big university was the academic culture, because the same way that the sport was really just kind of seen as an adjunct to teaching, um, at the University of Illinois, of course, um, academics were pursued in a much kind of different way in that, you know, it was, it was less about, you know, teaching the individual students there enrolled at the university, and it was, it was as much about creating research to benefit society and to reach the people outside of the university as it was, you know, actually reaching those students within. And I, I started to see almost a little bit of a parallel between the two, that, that uh, the big university employed um, big-time athletics in a way that it also kind of pursued big-time competitive research in some ways. I didn't intend to get that many themes of the book out of that that question, but, but you really you brought out a number of things you cover in the book, and and I guess probably the best place to start turning to the book is uh, to ask you to present your your main argument. And you have this idea that uh, which you've already hinted at that the leaders of developing American universities in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries actually embraced football as something that would yeah. benefit their institution. So could you could you explain your, your big argument for yeah. the book? Yeah, that's that's a, a good way that, that you just put it. I think, you know, I kind of started off with this idea that's been presented in some of the literature that, you know, academics don't like football. You know, professors don't like big-time college sports. And if you actually go back and look, what you start to see is that not just university presidents, but also professors in the Especially in the early 1900s, a lot of progressive era professors, they actually looked at sports. They looked at football as something that could kind of consciously help universities reach out to members of the public. Um, Especially social scientists said this because uh, some of them actually compared football to university extension. At the time, university extension was being created. Um, Psychologists said, well, this is a way of training young men's bodies and even kind of helping to train the public. you know, to helping them understand, you know, the the, the kind of activity that, that is needed to bolster the body in a modern society. And at the time of progressive era reforms, like the creation of the NCAA, they actually started saying, well, let's let's kind of institutionalize, let's let's make permanent this uh, this this competition, this sport, in order to reach out to the public and to teach things to the public that they need to know. And like you said, they, they really kind of consciously embraced football as a way of, of, of reaching out to the public. So let's go to uh, the start of the book. Your, your early chapter, you talk about um, the beginnings of institutions of higher education in the United States in the mid-19th century. And I'll ask you, what did, what did college athletics look like in this period around the time of the Civil War? The Civil War was really a time of transition. I would say... I mean, really, before about the 1820s, um, sport played a, a very little, or at the very least, a very, very informal role in um, colleges. In the 1820s, though, you do start to see gymnastics uh, coming into small colleges, especially places like Harvard and, and Yale and Oberlin. Meaning, meaning German-style gymnastics, correct? Yes, yes German-style, like Turner gymnastics that was developed during the Napoleonic Wars in the, in the early 1800s very much focused on the individual. And they, that, the popularity of 
German-style gymnastics ebbed and flowed in the antebellum period. But right before the Civil War then, intercollegiate baseball and rowing started to become popular, and it was really after the Civil War then that, that foot, team sports like football were really, um, really kind of um, gained a, a, large, a significant place within institutions of higher education. Uh, the first college football, intercollegiate football game was 1869, and then 1870s and 1880s is then when the current um, type of American football was developed with downs and timing and, and yardage and, and things like that. So really, the, the Civil War, like I said, is kind of that, that moment where people went from kind of looking at more at individual sports, kind of designed to teach young men how to understand how to control their bodies um, and how to learn morality. It goes from that to being kind of this organized discipline team competition. So something I found interesting in the book is that you look at the really parallel, well, I guess it wouldn't be parallel because they're they're interconnected throughout this this process, that the early development of American football was really linked to the development of American University. So how did those two two paths connect? Yeah. Well, I think the the kind of the key to understanding it is that this is a time of, you know, the division of labor and kind of the development of kind of large scale I mean industry, you know, and broader society. Uh, and universities are kind of many, many larger universities at this time were kind of starting to embrace you know, the modern division of labor and kind of, in some ways, almost kind of an industrial-style organization of, um, of creating knowledge and, you know, producing graduates to go out and work in the economy. And it's right around the same time that a lot of those, a lot of students in those schools are starting to bristle at the incredibly kind of increased, um, how do I say this, the, the increased intellectual pressure that's being put on them. They have to study a certain number of courses. They're being taught more and more information and more and more different disciplines. And a lot of those students start to say, well, we need something to kind of take the edge off. We need something to unwind and relax. And they turn to sports, sports like football, as kind of a way to give themselves some relief from that intense industrial era curriculum. Well, within a few years then, um, football itself becomes this kind of intense, rationalized, almost uh, uh, industrialized sport that is, you know, based on timing and measurement and all these things. And it becomes what they call scientific. You know, by the 1880s, 1890s, they talk about scientific football that's very um, disciplined and rationalized in the same way that industry and we might even say education was being uh, rationalized at that time. Yeah, and that was interesting as well. That even the uh, the supporters, the proponents of football, I've often seen this description of of football as a uh, modern, rational, almost industrial game. And and you bring out the sources that show, yeah, the the people who promoted football in the late nineteenth century, that's the way they saw it. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, Walter Camp is probably the most famous example of this. Um, you know, he invented downs and, and introduced timing and things like that. Well, he was he was a rational manager. He, he, you know, after he dropped out of Yale Medical School in the early 1880s, he went to work for a clock company in New York, and then he went to the New Haven Clock Company and ultimately worked his way up to be a president of the New Haven Clock Company by the early 1900s. And so he's kind of a, a, a tailorist kind of rational manager. This is a guy who's basically creating 
you know this this rational game of American football, and it's and I, I'm, you know, we only have a certain number of, of documents where he kind of indicates that, but but we can really see that kind of you know, his own disdain for chance and his own kind of embrace of rationality really comes through in that game as, as it was uh, shaped in the late 1800s. So in the early decades of its its development, football is a sport largely restricted to colleges and universities in the Northeast in the United States. Uh, but in the 1890s, it becomes nation, a nationwide sport. So what brings about yeah. that expansion? I think it has a lot to do with schools on the West Coast and the Midwest and even the South wanting to emulate those schools in the Northeast. They start to see football as something that kind of is a signifier of being a, a serious university kind of willing to compete on a national stage. Uh, also, I mean, a couple of factors that, that we may not think of is that students students were paying attention to what students in other places were doing. Um, by the 1890s, student newspapers were starting to develop on a lot of campuses. And, you know, students writing in, um, you know, the U of M Daily or the Inlander at the University of Michigan they're they're reading what the students at Harvard and Yale are writing in their newspapers. They're paying attention to what's going on out there, and they very much kind of want to be part of that. Um, and, and the students at Stanford and Berkeley, to a lesser extent, I think, are kind of plugged in those networks too. And so they they're wanting to kind of get be part of this kind of national game, this competition that's developing in uh, colleges, and it, especially in places like. Places like the South, and, and I think to a certain extent the West and the Midwest too. It's also professors, professors who have some of them have played football as college students, or you know they they've watched college football games while they were students, or even graduate students. They're moving out to these universities. They're you know they're getting PhDs at at Yale or Johns Hopkins, and then they're going and taking jobs at you know Iowa or Chicago or Georgia, or Auburn, or Stanford, and they're taking kind of this expectation with them that these schools will be um, per- will be competing in this kind of modern, Darwinistic kind of game. Um, and probably the best example I can think of with that is um, the first major college football game in the Deep South was uh, between Georgia and Auburn at Piedmont Park in Atlanta in the spring of 1892. And the um, the coaches of the, that first George Auburn game were both um, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, PhDs, uh, who were then kind of getting getting football started at their respective universities. So at the turn of the century, there begins to be a, d- a debate in the United States about college football. And uh, but first, before we get into the the criticisms, I want to ask: How did university presidents uh, defend football? Well, that's that's a good question. I mean, there were a lot of times we talk about, <laughs> excuse me, we talk about Charles William Elliott of Harvard, who was kind of the central critic of football, and a lot of people kind of latch onto him and say, oh, well, look, most, you know, you have people like like Elliott who really want to um, get rid of football, uh, but actually, I think he's in some ways representative of kind of an older or transitional generation that likes some things about sport, but but doesn't like others. Um, but if you look at the younger generation of people like David Starr Jordan at Stanford, um, uh, William Rainey Harper at Chicago, uh, Edmund James at the University of Illinois, they really, by the early 1900s, are saying things like, well, football is a manly game. We need to preserve it because it teaches young men 
manliness. It teaches them um, how to be young men in this uh, society. Also, uh, James at the University of Illinois, very specifically, uh, and it makes sense that he was a public university president as opposed to a private university president, he specifically comes out and says, you know, this is a way for us to connect to taxpayers. I think he said this in about 1912, and, and he said, you know, uh, he, he estimated, I don't know if this was true or not, but his, his statistic he came up with, he said, you know, only about one in six Illinoisans actually knows about the University of Illinois and what it does. And we rely on tax dollars. And if we want to make sure that we keep getting the tax dollars that keeps us able to do what we do, we need something that essentially publicizes this university to the people of the state of Illinois. And to him, uh, football was a big part of that. And he even went beyond that to say things like, well, you know, football is so important because it can bring the whole university together. We're getting bigger. We have all these departments, these disciplines that are creating specialized knowledge useful for modern society. We need something to help all of the different students and professors and departments kind of come together in one place. And for him, I really think, I think he was trying to say that he, he thought that football would do that. Um, now, did he really believe that? Was that just kind of rhetoric? I'm not totally sure, but he certainly was saying that, and it must have struck a chord because um, I think a lot of state universities embrace that idea. So there were also at this time uh, calls for reform, in, particularly in the first decade of the 20th century. So what were the, the concerns or the objections about football? That's a really good question. I think the, the concerns come down to uh, probably about three three concerns or so that we can really point our, our fingers to. Number one was the concern of injuries to the students, uh, physical injuries. There were the same way we talk today about concussions and spinal injuries in the NFL or in college football. There was a really big concern that college and high school students were dying or being permanently injured on a field in a way that was going to really um, dramatically affect their lives later on. There was even a fear that maybe injuries being that were uh, being suffered. In um, when students were in college playing football, that they might not show up, their uh, effects might not show up for another 30 or 40 years. And there was this concern that a whole generation of young American men was being damaged physically, psychologically. So I think that was the first concern, was the, the physical concern. Um, there was another concern that we maybe don't talk as much about, and that was the concern that young men and the public were being... Um, taught immoral ways. They were being taught to play to the crowd. They were being taught to value money over virtue and sportsmanship. Uh, they were learning to gamble, you know, that young men were going to college, and instead of, you know, hitting the books, they were taking their, their father's money and gambling it away on, uh, on football games or, or spending it on kind of these frivolous consumer activities. And, and there was this concern that football was somehow corrupting the young men of a progressive society. And I think the third concern was not just a concern for, for individuals, but a concern for institutions. The concern was that football through gambling and physical injuries and the, the corruption was really, it was corrupting, corrupting institutions of higher education. These, these universities that are supposed to be training young men, they're supposed to be producing valuable, useful ideas for progressive society that they're going to be corrupted. And, this is at a time where big state universities were being created or funded by state legislatures, or private universities were being created and, and funded by, by donors, you know, people donating millions of dollars to found universities. And there was a real concern amongst some progressives 
that these donors, the state legislatures, would look at the university, say they're corrupt, they're not worthy of being funded, and that then um, that support would kind of wither away because of this, this pop culture institution taking over those universities. So one interesting detail I found in, the, in this chapter on uh, mm-hmm. the, the calls for reform at the turn of the century is that uh, there were calls to eliminate football, but they still wanted mm-hmm. to have a manly sport. And so there were yeah. pretty widespread suggestions that rugby yeah. be introduced. Yeah. Yeah, the, I think the biggest um, push for rugby really was on the West Coast. And it's interesting today because some of the biggest uh, rugby programs in the country are in California. And it makes sense when you look at the fact that rugby actually replaced college football in um, in 1906, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area. I contend in the book that I, and I think there's evidence showing this, that actually part of that has to do with the San Francisco earthquake, that the earthquake actually kind of was this, you know, kind of inspired this moment of rebuilding, of starting over again. And people like David Stark Jordan at Stanford and Benjamin Wheeler at Berkeley said, okay, let's get rid of football. Let's not try this new thing that they're creating out on the East Coast. Let's do our own thing. Let's get the West Coast to embrace rugby as a reform. And they convinced actually a large chunk of the West Coast to convert to rugby for about, uh, I'd say, close to 10 years. Um, Stanford and Santa Clara were a couple of the last holdouts in about 1918. Um, exclusively playing rugby instead of uh, football, but they they actually they tried to get the whole country to convert. I mean, this is, you know, California progressivism trying to kind of impose itself on the rest of the country, but uh, David Starr Jordan actually wrote uh, a form letter. He addressed it to, to Van Hyes, the president of Wisconsin, but he sent it out to colleges all over the country saying, you know, you need to get on board with us. The way you fix the problems with football is by adopting rugby. Um, you know, don't just, you know, introduce a few things like the forward pass, but actually get rid of the game, embrace this game, which is safer, it's more manly, it gets more people involved. And they also said it would get, um, it would allow those schools, especially on the West Coast, to compete with schools um, throughout the Pacific uh, Rim area. So uh, to participate with teams in places like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, places like that, too. Yeah, yeah, that was something interesting I found, that they weren't looking to to England as the uh, the source no. for rugby. They were looking to Australia. Yeah. They were primarily looking to the British Empire, uh, the, the Pacific Rim parts of the British Empire. So, yeah, a lot of times when people think about rugby, they think, oh, it, it's about England. But um, they, even though there were some some folks, I think, who were kind of Anglophiles who said, well, we need to pattern it on, on England, it was really more of an imperial thing. It's more of it's, it's, it's less about the metropole, and it's more about kind of the imperial hinterlands that, that people like Jordan and, and Wheeler are looking to when they're thinking about, about rugby reform. Mm-hmm. So something you've mentioned already, especially with, with your opening remarks, is uh, mm-hmm. you, you talk about how uh, the debates over football and the development of the game fit within the progressive era of American politics and society. So can you talk a bit more about how this era in football's history connects with the larger developments of the progressive era in the United States? That's a great question. I think, you know, I, I always have a, it's a challenge teaching the progressive era uh, to some of my students. I've even had colleagues in the past who have a hard time understanding exactly what was going on in the progressive era. And what I ultimately, you know, tell my students is I say, well, this was a time of, you know, trying to fix the problems of a big 
urban society, of a, a nation that was still kind of in the process of consolidating and reforming these these things that we've been talking about, the, the influence of money, the, the deaths, the gambling, things like that. And as universities are, are a central part of that, and when, you know, those aspects of pop culture and consumer culture kind of come into the university, uh, progressives start to say, okay, we need to, we need to fix this. And I, I think really one of the key, one of the key things I, I would say about the progressive era is that it's at the time of kind of wanting to balance the idea of order with disorder. You've got to, you've got to regulate things. You've got to kind of maintain a certain level of consistency but you don't want to squeeze the element of chance or you don't want to squeeze risk entirely out of society. And this is, you know, when a lot of people think of the progressive era, they think of uh, Teddy Roosevelt and trust busting. You know, you've got to get rid of the monopolies so that you can have competition again. Um, You know, you don't want to, you want to have things kind of rationally managed, but you don't want to get rid of all of the chance that makes society so kind of interesting and able to grow and develop. And that's kind of what's happening in, in football, too. Um, a good example of this, I think, is the, uh, um, and maybe I'm anticipating one of your questions here, but the, the, one of the key reforms introduced in 1905, 1906 is the forward pass. And what I would say about the forward pass is that it's a way of trying to make the game safer and regulate it. At the same time, it's trying to reintroduce a certain element of chance into the game. Because by this time, uh, mass plays like the flying wedge had gotten to the point where it was what they called five yards in a cloud of dust. You know, just just methodically plod your way down the field as as you know carefully, as monotonously as possible, because that's the way you score points. And it's also dangerous to do that. But the the forward pass is a way of saying, okay, it's not just going to be five yards in a cloud of dust, but we're actually going to throw that ball twenty, thirty, forty yards down the field, and we might be able to score make the game more interesting and possibly make it, it healthier as a result because there won't be as many hard tackles and mass plays and things like that. That's kind of a, a roundabout way of answering your question, but I hope it gets at, at some of the things you're, you're asking about the progressive era. Yeah, yeah. No, that was interesting of how the uh, the development of the forward pass is a progressive era reform, and, it, and it's ironic that at the time it was seen as a way of improving safety, whereas now I would say the forward pass is... Uh, you know, particularly a pass over the middle is seen as a dangerous part of the game. Yeah, and and it was actually debated at that time. Some people said, "Well, it's going to make the game more safe for for the young men's bodies." Other other people actually said it, it'll make the game less safe. They thought there might be more physical danger. But again, some people said, "Well, even if it makes the game more physically dangerous, it's going to make the game morally better because what's going to happen is it's going to open up the field of play. The players won't be." Uh, so packly, tightly packed together on the field. And as a result, then, the officials on the field and the people up in the stands will better be able to see what's going on on the field. And you can actually enforce the rules. You can keep guys from slugging each other when they're down you know, on the ground. And so it's, it's both a physical reform and it's also a moral reform in some ways, too. Well, I'll pick up on that idea that, that football brings about moral benefit. Uh, you You talk about... Uh, researchers in the developing fields of the social sciences in the in the early 20th century, and yeah. uh, these early social scientists argued that football was of benefit to young men, not only for their physical health yeah. but their their mental health. 
And some even yeah. argued that football was good for the uh, the morals of the spectators who watch. Mm-hmm. So could you talk about this? Yeah. yeah, that's that's one of the things I really was I was not expecting to find when I, I started doing this research. But but you actually have some social scientists and then eventually coaches uh, around the same time start to say the same thing as they say, well, uh, the game isn't it's good morally. It's good for those, you know, 22 men or however many men on the field, but it's also good for all the spectators sitting uh, sitting around in the in the in the stands. Uh, what they say is that this is a way of kind of learning disciplined behavior, especially because all those people in the stands are supposed to be able to help enforce um, the kind of moral order, the moral discipline that's happening that should be happening there on the field. So you have people saying, well, you've got to sit up in the stands where you can see the whole, all the action on the field, because, and you've got to pay attention very closely. You've got to be a disciplined spectator so that you can help impose that discipline there onto the field. And there are social scientists writing about this. Like I said, there are coaches um, writing about this. Uh, for example, um, you know, Fielding Yost, the coach at the University of Michigan in, in a 1905 book, you know, he says that the, the kind of spirit of discipline can can permeate the whole crowd when they're watching this. And it sounds a little far-fetched, but then you go read what Josiah Royce, um, a, a, an ethicist and philosophy professor at Harvard, was writing right around the same time, and he's saying things like, well, physical education and sporting events, games, can actually help young men who are in the stands watching, too, because it kind of... Um, it, it helps them learn this kind of sense of uh, discipline, behavior, and even kind of loyalty, uh, things like that. And so it's kind of this, it's this idea that starts to permeate a society in which spectator sports are becoming common, and it's the idea that sports aren't just good for the people in the field, but they're good for everybody sitting around in the stands, too. And, and quite frankly, I'm skeptical that that's actually true, but certainly hundred years ago, people were starting to think in those terms that that the people in the stand, as long as they're paying attention and help and in, kind of participating in the game in a, in a moral kind of disciplined sense, that they can actually gain benefits from, from the game as well. So you mentioned Fielding Yost, the, the coach at the University of yeah. Michigan, and he was one of uh, several legendary coaches in the history of the game that you discuss in the book. So can you tell us what was the role of a football coach at a university in the early 20th century? That's a great question. And it's another one of those cases where it's kind of a transitionary, uh, transitional period where, you know, in the late 1800s, there really isn't such a thing as a professional coach. Uh, Amos Alonzo Stagg at Chicago by the 1890s is kind of moving in that direction. Um, but it's it's really in the early 1900s that you start to have universities specifically hiring uh, men, usually young men, former athletes, to come in and full time be the, the leaders of their football teams. Um, you know, in the 1880s, 1890s, Walter Camp was you know he was working his day job at the New Haven Clock Company. In the evening, he and his wife were you know coaching the Yale football team to one of the, the best records of the era. But by 1905. It's Stag at Chicago, Yost at Michigan. Um, you know, some of the early coaches are actually starting to get jobs where their job is. You know, they might also be a physical education professor, but first and foremost, their job is to get those teams ready for competition. You know, you even have uh, Stag at Chicago saying things like, "Well, you know, we need to put 
a team on the field that is going to represent the university well, that's going to win games, that you know, it's going to make the University of Chicago look good to uh, to the people out there in the public. And um, it's around 1905 that you start to see coaches like Yost then even writing books that kind of get some of these ideas across. Um, and they're, they're books that are designed partly as manuals, you know, designed to... Um, you know, coaches and players are supposed to read them and learn from them, but it's also kind of uh, they're they're writing these books that are trying to explain that football has a larger purpose within the university and within the society. And it's not just a it's not just a game, but it's designed to teach young men. It's designed to provide this kind of important service to the universities too. Brian, you have a chapter devoted to football stadiums and the building of football yeah. stadiums, and uh, I want to ask you about. I guess the second wave of stadium building, which takes place after the First World War. And yeah. this is when the the huge arenas like Memorial Stadium in, in at the University of Illinois uh, were mm-hmm. built, holding tens of thousands yeah. of fans. So what, yeah. what drove these stadium building campaigns? I think first and foremost in that second wave, at least the rhetoric was that it, it was nationalism. It was a way of proving um, a university's uh, kind of connection to the nation in this time of extreme nationalism right after World War One, um, to do with providing a place for young men to exhibit their preparation for warfare and also then to teach the public of maintaining the physical body so that, you know, when individuals are called on to fight for their country, they're, they're in a position to do that. I think that that's if you if you just look at the primary sources, I think that's what you see, and it, and it makes so much sense when you think about Memorial Stadium in Illinois, Memorial Stadium at the University of California, all the other Memorial Stadiums built, especially in the Midwest, Indiana, Minnesota, um, they're kind of they're dotted all over the landscape. But you also see that at places not specifically called Memorial Stadium, Ohio Stadium at Ohio State is is another example of that kind of militaristic nationalistic rhetoric coming into it. But what happened is I I kept looking at the sources and I I kept thinking about nationalism. I, I remember talking to people about this and 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 you know one of my friends was he was just so skeptical. He said, you know, I don't I'm not sure it's just I'm not sure they really meant all those things they were saying. I said, well no, I think they do and and then I kept looking at the literature of how they were going about doing the fundraising and what you started to see was that they would say, you know, we're going to be we're going to be building a memorial to, to all the men who died during World War One, and but then in the in the fundraising literature, they'd say, well, okay, if that doesn't get somebody to donate money, well then, point out that it's going to be an athletic field for all the students of the university to come and maintain their bodies and to develop, uh, you know, into good strong men and so forth. And then if that didn't work, then they would fall back on, well, if you give us money you'll be able to buy tickets to go see this. You know, you'll get first preference to, to buy tickets to see the game. And they even at Michigan, they even start saying things like, well, look, see, if you, if, you don't buy, uh, if you don't buy tickets now, if you don't help fund the stadium, well, you're going to be sitting out here on the street instead of actually in the stadium. And I, although I think the rhetoric of, of nationalism is, is a huge part of it, and we, we, we certainly can't overlook it, a lot of it's about consumerism, and it's a, lot, a lot of it's about competing with other universities for students, for publicity, um, and making sure that you know they're getting they're getting ticket dollars. And um, you know, I think that I think that the 1920s is such an interesting time because you do have 
consumerism tied so closely to these kind of ideas of competition and nationalism and so forth. And and that's if you scratch the surface a little bit, uh, if you if you scratch through the the nationalist rhetoric of the stadium building campaigns, you start to see this this fear that the university will be overlooked because it's not playing football. You'll see, you know, a desire to get attention and dollars from consumers, from the people who want to watch college football. And and that's that's an important that's a really important part of the story too. Well let me follow up on that. So these stadiums are built. We have crowds in the in the tens of thousands. Yeah. Uh, college football yeah. is becoming hugely popular in the twenties and thirties yeah. and then there's a new wave of criticism about college football. Yeah. So what were these yeah. these new critics? Because the issue is no longer safety, correct? You have you have new issues in the twenties and thirties that are brought up. In the, yeah, in the twenties and thirties, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I said earlier the third issue that was important in the progressive era is the idea that universities were somehow becoming corrupted by football. And I think in the twenties and thirties, that is the issue that really kind of takes over. Um, this idea that. Universities are no longer places of education. They're places of um, consumerism, and they're, they're places of kind of um, that are not really doing a good job of, of teaching students. And a lot of this critique actually comes from some of the same people who are they're, they're not just critiquing sports, they're actually critiquing the way universities are run more generally. Um, there was a, a movement, especially in the 30s, to get back to the great books and to what, what became known as liberal arts education. And today when we talk about small colleges, we talk about the liberal arts college. And I think the thing we need to understand is that, you know, the idea of, of the liberal arts goes back, you know, hundreds of years to certainly to the medieval era, if not before. But the idea of a liberal arts college, a small usually denominational college that is specifically dedicated to teaching this thing called the liberal arts. In some ways, that's kind of an invention of the 1930s. And it's some of those critics who start to say, hey, instead of being big universities that are designed to, um, you know, do biology as well as possible and do history as well as possible and to disseminate ideas to the, you know, uh, not disseminate, but to create these high-powered ideas, instead of doing that, and instead of just being really good at playing this consumer game, this consumer spectacle football, what we need to do is we need to actually go back to teaching individual students. We need to go back to the liberal arts. We need to go back to teaching young men discipline. And they, by and large, the, some of these critics in the, in the 30s especially, they just don't buy the idea that um, that, that sport is, is teaching all these things to the students and to the public. And they want to kind of get rid of some of those trappings of the big progressive area university, and they want to go back to something that's much kind of smaller and simpler. Um, that's one of the the modes of, of critique against football in the, in the 30s. There's also a, a slightly different critique coming out of the AUP, which is that it's less of a critique of big universities. It's more a critique of consumer spectacles keeping the universities from doing their job because it's focusing too much attention on the sport and not on the actual, um, and not on the research and so forth. So it's primarily a lot of faculty members and some administrators who are concerned that um, basically the football is coming, what they call king football, is coming to overshadow uh, the other purposes of, of the modern university. 
Related to that, something you talk about in those chapters, uh, dealing more with the the history of higher education in the United States, is the development of this uh, this idea of the ivory tower, uh, the yeah. professor who's removed from the rest of society. So, how does that connect with the story of of the criticisms of football? Yeah, I think that you know what what's so interesting is if you look at those those progressive era intellectuals, the ones in the early 1900s who are saying, you know, football is good because it, it, you know, if played properly, it can strengthen the body, it can strengthen the nervous system, or they're saying, well, it can strengthen the morals of students. Those professors in many ways were, kind of saw themselves as public intellectuals. They really kind of were engaged in what was going on in progressive era public society. But by the 1920s and 30s, there's kind of a new generation of of academics and intellectuals coming along who really, they're not part of that progressive era moment anymore. They are really kind of ensconced in their laboratories, in their offices, and and I, I've kind of imposed that term on them. Very, very few of them use the term ivory tower. I've used that as kind of a way of indicating what's happening is that, you know, what's happening in research, even though it's very, very useful for society, in a lot of ways it's becoming inaccessible to the people who aren't part of the university, you know, the specialized discussions going on in psychology departments or philosophy departments just really isn't, it, it doesn't reach the common people anymore, even if, even if some of their ideas ultimately uh, maybe do kind of trickle down. And it's as these professors are kind of becoming removed from, uh, from society, some of them, at least in this earlier period, are kind of willing to embrace you know, this department, this, the athletic department as as a part of the university that is able to reach out to those people and, and say some and do something of relevance to them. And it's by the 20s and 30s that you have kind of a new generation that's at least starting to question that idea. Uh, some of them, some of them start to kind of bristle at the idea that there is this ivory tower. They say, no, we need to be more relevant to the people. Again, this is where the great books and the liberal arts uh, comes into play. And they say, you know, we shouldn't just let football do the, the – we shouldn't give it the job of reaching out to the people. We need to be able to reach out to the people, and football is more of a distraction uh, to that than it is an actual aid to it. Because I think they're – really, their their idea of what colleges and universities should be doing um, in, in relation to the public has, has changed a lot since about 1905 in that 20- in that or 30-year period. And I think World War One has a lot to do with it. After World War, during and after World War One, a lot of intellectuals, a lot of professors start questioning exactly, you know, their relationship to the government, to the people, and you know how how they can kind of be relevant in a way that's not where they're not just a cogging in some bigger machine. Brian, the end point of your book is the decision by the University of Chicago to eliminate football in 1939. Yeah. And uh, so today, the University of Chicago is known as one of the elite research universities in the country, one of the top academic schools. But once upon a time, it was a football power. So so what yep. led administrators and faculty at the University of Chicago to, to end football? Yeah. And that's that's such a great question. It's, it's I think, a lot more complicated than, than people typically understand. Um, I mean, I'm not the first person to talk about you know Chicago's decision to get rid of big-time football in uh, in 1939, but what I think is so fascinating is, is you're right. Chicago was the 
Midwestern power. I, I mean, the, the the rivalry didn't used to be Michigan Ohio State. It was Michigan Chicago. That was the Midwestern rivalry. But you know, Amos Alonzo Stag hung around for a very long time at uh, Chicago as the coach. And by the nineteen late nineteen twenties into the nineteen thirties, he he wasn't winning anymore. And it wasn't entirely his fault. It had a lot to do with the fact that. Um, the new president, Robert Robert Hutchins, was one of these great books, liberal arts proponents, who he really wanted to get football out of the university because he thought it was a distraction. He he wanted to find other ways to, to teach and to reach out to the public. And so he actually, uh, Hutchins, this is the president, actually, uh, he brought in a new athletic director who was more on board with his idea of sport as opposed to Stagg's idea of, you know, winning games and, and providing publicity, which, which was very much an 1890s idea. But by the 1930s, really, in some ways, the administration was kind of uh, choking off the success of, of football in order to try to get rid of this, what it saw as distraction uh, from the university. And a big part of the failure of, of big-time football at Chicago is the fact that Stagg just kept trying to get a new stadium built in the 20s and 30s. Um, at this time, all of the Big Ten schools, because Chicago was a member of the Big Ten at this time, all the Big Ten schools were building new stadiums. Um, Illinois and Ohio State were the biggest, uh, Michigan a little bit later on in the, in the 20s. But, you know, even Indiana, Minnesota, um, Wisconsin was building onto their stadium. And Stagg kept trying to get a new stadium at Chicago. And they did build onto um, uh, Marshall Field, which later became known as Stagg Field, uh, actually, right where Regenstein Library is at today, at the University of Chicago, but they they could never get the trustees quite on board or the administration on board with the idea of building a new stadium. What Stag wanted to do is he actually wanted to build a, a 100,000 seat stadium uh, just south of the Midway. So move the stadium from its place in the middle of campus, kind of to the to the margins of campus there in Hyde Park, build this new stadium, bring in more money, which he said would be useful as an endowment. He said it would be useful to, you know, provide publicity. This The stuff William Rainey Harper was saying 30 years earlier when he hired Stagg, but the administration wouldn't do that, and eventually, as the stadium starts crumbling, Stagg's getting older, it's getting harder for him to recruit, recruit players, then Hutchins and some of his... Um, his folks, like uh, Mortimer Adler, another great books proponent there at Chicago, they're able to kind of, um, kind of squeeze football to the point where it just makes sense to get rid of it by 1939. So we're almost out of time, Brian, and uh, I want to ask for all the money and the corruption and the seeming disregard of the educational and moral purposes of college sports. Is is there still a necessary role for college football today? That's a really good question. And I think that, you know, I think for, for better or worse, I think that there's probably some truth to the idea that football as to play provides some publicity and it provides some, I don't want to say engagement, but it, it makes the public aware of universities. Now, does it do it in an adequate way? I, I don't think so. I think there are better ways of engaging with the public or publicizing universities that are, are measurable and, and not detrimental to, to students. But it, it probably does have that function uh, to a certain extent, although, again, I think there are probably better ways of providing those, those services. And I think ultimately what I would say is that, uh, and maybe it's my own bias of having uh, gone to a, a small, what we might call liberal arts college, I, 
I, I do. I like the Division Three model of sports. That it's not big time. It's not about money. It's not about TV revenue. It's about having competition. You know, between pretty much amateur students on a small scale and giving students a chance at, at you know, colleges to compete against each other. Um, I think I think that there's certainly a role for that kind of Division Three model of sports. Is it? possible that we're ever going to see the Division Three model carried over into present-day Division One, Division Two schools? Probably not. I, I don't know that. But I, I would say certainly certainly there's a role for what for what Division Three sports do. I think that uh, my own personal feeling is I think Division One sports are, are in some ways a little bit out of hand and, and are essentially semi, semi-professional sports operated by universities in a way that um, as, as people pointed out uh, in the last uh, few months, it's actually it can be very detrimental to the athletes and, and to, to the universities as well that are sponsoring them. So that's that's a kind of incomplete answer to that question. But I, I think that I think we certainly need to be critical of, of exactly what college sports are doing on campus. So I'll ask you what you're what you're working on now. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I discovered that. After you publish a book, you need a, a couple months just to kind of uh, recover a little <laughs> bit and take take um, take uh, stock of where you're at. Uh, there's actually a project I've been working on for off and on for several years now that I'm really excited about. Um, I don't know if it's going to be my my very next thing, but uh, I'm actually I'm looking actually at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway as uh, which has not been studied very well, especially not by academics. Um, and I'm kind of looking at that as a way of helping us understand progressive era ideas about uh, urban space and the potential of automobility and understanding the body and the mind and how kind of how the nervous system would react to the to the extreme speed of of modern society. So that's that's one of the things I'm working on right now, and hopefully, hopefully, I'll be able to to finish that that project in the in the near future and and kind of you know look at the way that automobile racing at the time when the automobile was was kind of this this promising new innovative technology was kind of it, it was it was permeating american life and that um you know it its cultural presence was, was a really important part of that um of that that transformation and the way people thought about speed and so forth that sounds cool we'll have to book you for a return appearance uh, i'm looking forward to it You've been listening to an interview with Brian Ingracia about his book, The Rise of Gridiron University, Higher Education's Uneasy Alliance with Big Time Football, published by the University Press of Kansas in 2012. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from European studies to science, technology, and society. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.